2: Hey, before we get going here, I would like to tell you a little bit about a new sponsor which has generously decided to support Longform FreshBooks. They're a dead simple cloud accounting software that's saving millions of freelancers from the scourge of dealing with their day-to-day admin and paperwork. I can tell you as a small, tiny, little business owner myself, this is the thing that no one wants to do. What is it that they don't want to do? Invoicing. Ah. It takes about 30 seconds with FreshBooks to create a pro-looking invoice. The client can pay you online, and if they don't pay you, it sends an automatic notice, which is so much less awkward than having to send that email, which then damages your relationship, and then everything gets terrible. Instead, let FreshBooks handle that for you. What else can they handle for you? Business expense tracking. You can set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank account, so if you go have a business lunch bang like magic that appears in your fresh book account for a 30-day free trial go to freshbooks.com slash long form when they ask how did you hear about us please type in long form that'll let them know hey uh these uh long form people they want to support the show and uh, do some good accounting all right thanks fresh books here's the show
0: And welcome to the Local Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer in via phone. I'm assuming that is Max and Evan on the other end of this line. Either that or it's one of my mother's friends. Hello. <laughs> good hey, day to you, Aaron. Oh, good day. It is you. Oh, it is you. Oh, oh. I am uh, continuing my sojourn here in California and taking advantage of the uh, bounty of writers available here in the fine bay area uh this week i talked to Susie kegel who is a um a journalist who uses uh drawings i was going to say a cartoonist but i think that might be not not what not what is said these days comics journalist a comics journalist thank you evan Wow. I'm surprised Evan knew that, because one of the first times I met Evan, one of the things he told me about himself was that he'd never seen an animated movie. I didn't say I'd never seen one. I said I don't like them. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, you'll never watch one again, maybe. That's, this is I, before you had a child. You no, know, what I said was, I'll never watch one except in, for, for the benefit of a child. I will not watch one uh, solely as an adult with other adults. It took got 189 it, episodes, it. but now Evan is being exco- exposed <laughs> as the grumpiest man alive. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Susie Cagle, is uh, very interesting, uh, comics journalist. She's done all sorts of interesting stuff. She was at Grist, and now she's been all over the place. Really interesting interview. I'm um, looking forward to this one. Aaron, we have a sponsor this week. MailChimp? That's right, MailChimp. That is absolutely right. Tell me about MailChimp, Aaron Lammer. Well, I just started a new email news list on MailChimp, and when you sign up for MailChimp, you realize how many resources they have available to you to help you send better email from cool templates uh, to uh, a really interesting blog that, that talks about the best practices and the best way to talk to the people who are your customers or friends or clients or what have you. So thank you again, MailChimp. You're the best at what you do. And now here's Aaron with Susie Cagle.
2: Welcome, Susie Cagle. You are a outspoken freelancer, you're someone who um, both freelances and writes about freelancing and writes about uh, the economy that's sprung up in this country around non-full-time labor. I- I'm curious, as someone who's been a real critic of um, a lot of the sharing economy and a lot of the um, types of work that are not full-time, but who embraces it yourself, how you how you see that contradiction.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I love being a freelancer and I actually grew up. Uh, my, my dad has never had a job wow, um, and is very proud of that fact. And uh, one of the first pieces of really salient life advice he gave me was don't ever have a boss if you can help it. And that was very genuine, and it's also a very weird thing to say to
2: a child. What are you supposed to do that with that from like 14 to 22? Exactly, yeah. be yeah.
3: really confused and poor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I guess I I was um, prepared uh, to have a, a kind of a stranger career trajectory
2: i can understand how you might have never had a boss but i'm guessing your dad like didn't have a boss in the 60s or 70s how like how did he manage to never have a boss
3: he was always a contractor he um was an illustrator a commercial illustrator he worked for the muppets for many years but always as a contractor (laughs) Um, so yeah he did commercial illustration editorial illustration um and then became a political cartoonist uh, later in his life and runs a newspaper syndicate that sells uh, political cartoons to lots of small newspapers, pr- pretty dying industry.
2: So in terms of where you ended up in the no boss spectrum, was he were you uh, pressured into editorial cartooning?
3: Not at <laughs> oh, okay. all. If anything, I was pressured away from editorial. You're cartooning. One the, you're
2: one of the few people in the country who even had the opportunity to be pressured into editorial cartooning
3: yes and I was probably dissuaded more than the average person may have been
2: (laughs) so what did you want to do with yourself
3: I wanted to be a writer I wanted to be a journalist I wanted to have you know one of these jobs that doesn't exist anymore right so I went to journalism school kind of thinking that uh, I would have this you know linear linear job trajectory moved to New York and um
2: did you realize before you went to journalism school that those kind of jobs didn't really exist anymore or after you went to journalism school
3: a little bit. It was 2005, yeah. So it was still, oh, maybe this Craigslist thing won't totally pan out, um, <laughs> and uh, and it just didn't turn out that way. Yeah. Uh, well, I graduated. I think in the in you know those horrible doomsday charts, I yeah. can see the year that I graduated yeah. is the steepest drop. You off graduated of, off the, the worst
2: possible time yeah. in American history. Okay. Yeah. So what did you what did you do with that?
3: I started freelancing in in New York um, as this you know, young kid. Um, and I, I did some really awful, awful writing, um, and some awful assignments for a while. I was writing blog posts for a, uh, college blog network, which meant that I was pretending to be a college student okay. writing about the college student I, experience. I, I could, I
2: could see it. Yeah. 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 Like as yourself or under a pseudonym?
3: Uh, as myself, okay. You know, that was my, not my choice and 10 bucks a pop. Okay. and just churning them out as fast as possible yeah i was applying for all all kinds of really dark early internet journalism jobs um i think i applied for multiple uh, editorial assistant jobs at parenting websites just something i had zero interest in uh i mean it was it was awful
2: did you consider changing course
3: I did. And I thought about this a lot recently, especially now this is like this weekend is my 10 year journalism school (laughs) reunion and everyone's there, you know, celebrating this. And I, and I have such mixed feelings about it and mixed feelings about the last 10 years. And I, and I, every six months I, I reconsider what the hell I'm doing.
2: So is there, there's like an alternate you who's at that journalism school reunion who Completely like abandoned journalism, and it has a totally different life now.
3: Yeah, and who maybe went into nonprofits or yeah. you know so, something like that, um, and you know may, maybe did PR. Probably not. I don't think that I have you know the the composition of personality for that. Or went to law school. A lot of people went to law school after after journalism school. There's yeah. not necessarily any shame in that. I don't really know what it was that made me not quit. And I still, I just, I I still kind of wonder that there have been many times over the last couple of years, even as things are, you know, taking off in my career, things are going well. I'm writing about wonderful things that are interesting to me. And I still wonder, should I be doing this? What the hell is next year going to look like?
2: So how long have you been here in Oakland?
3: I left New York um, actually on a plan to leave journalism Um, in uh, early 2008. um, I had some friends uh, working at various tech companies that with really silly names that no longer exist. And I, they had worked in journalism and they had left and now they were making great money doing next to nothing. And, uh, that's, that seemed like a great con. I wanted a part of that. Um, so I moved to San Francisco in January of 2008. Um, and, I ended up getting a journalism job and I couldn't get one of these sellout tech jobs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're like w- one week too late to get get on the gravy train. Yeah, it just yeah. didn't
3: work out for me.
2: I feel like actually the t- the tech industry probably should have insulated itself and just given you a job because you've probably caused more damage the other direction <laughs> by pursuing, uh, journalism instead. They could have just, uh, rubbed you out and you'd have like a sweet job and like a dog and a house in San Francisco. Oh
3: yeah. I mean, if my first job had been at TechCrunch, maybe this all would have been very <laughs> different.
2: So at what point, like in your career here in the Bay Area, did you start writing about the Bay Area itself? Cause Uh, I'm actually, um, I was surprised when you said that you had spent time in New York. I very closely identify with your, your work with communities here in Oakland. And I always kind of wonder, I'm, I'm from this community, but I would never write about it. How long you felt like you had to be here before you felt like I could write about Oakland and not be the person who came for the tech job and failed to get one.
3: So the, the first gig I got in San Francisco was, um, being the editor of Curbed San Francisco. Um, so writing about real estate Wow in two thousand eight.
2: That's a pretty cr- that's I would say of all the curbs, you drew a good curbed.
3: Oh yeah. yeah. And, and at the right the yeah. the best and the worst yeah. moment. Um, I my first week of work was the week that the market crashed in October. So that job didn't last very long. Yeah. Um, but it, but it was a wonderful adventure and it was kind of a, um, it was a learning curve for me in terms of, you know, just writing that many posts a day. I mean, It was such a high volume of stuff, but it was also having to learn about San Francisco and the greater Bay area on my feet super fast.
2: This is a place also where people are eager to point out you not knowing what you're talking like San Francisco real estate is not something you can really fake a knowledge of. It's a pretty, it's a pretty deep lore. There's a lot of people who are pretty invested in it. So when, when you're thrust into a situation like that, like how, how do you, how do you try and pick that kind of stuff up on the job?
3: I mean, I, I feel like I did it Halfway decent job, um, <laughs> but it, but it was not easy. And there are people out here who, um, I mean, especially I think especially in 2008, it was a very wonky community that was interested in real estate in San Francisco. Even though all of these wild things were happening, it wasn't something that was really interesting to a broad audience in the way that it is now. So I um, I got a lot of comments about how I was ob- I had obviously was was fresh from uh, New York, um, and they were right. That was true. There were other people who were doing it better than I was. And I just tried to learn from them and, and steal their ideas and figure out who their sources were um, and just kind of work backwards.
2: Had doing comic stuff in your work always been an ambition for you? Or like when, when did you start doing stories that could not be encapsulated in a text document?
3: it really was inspired by that job we had to publish 12 posts a day um and i had to write the bulk of those and it was presented as you know you write these posts but then you have to find a picture for them and the picture is the problem. The post isn't the problem. You have you write this post, but then oh god, you have to figure out a way to put a picture on it that's gonna be interesting to people and is gonna stand out to them. And um, pictures about real estate suck and are terrible. And uh, so I started putting little speech balloons on people or doing really basic shitty photoshops of um, you know moguls on maps and things. And um, it was a lot of fun, and those posts got more attention, and people liked them.
2: When we look back at the aesthetic of this era on the internet and, and publishing, it's interesting, like, you can kind of teach a robot to imitate, like, a shitty blog post, or you can, there's this whole sort of spectrum of, I wrote this myself. Someone else wrote this, and I, like, rewrote it. Someone else did the interview and I wrote like all the way up to actually original work. And then when you look at photos, it's, there's almost no gradation. It's like either there's really like art associated with this or this is stock, stock photography. Like there's, there's very little in between. I almost wonder if like the stock photo is going to be like the seventies colors of our generation. (laughs) Cause you can really identify like, oh God, I'm on a hastily put together web page with, like, a photo someone found in seven seconds. It's taking up half of the page. Did people like it when you started putting illustrations into the site?
3: I think so. And, you know, they weren't even really illustrations. I mean, they said, <laughs> like, looking back on them, they suck. They're not yeah. <laughs> good at all. But I think that it was just a sense of I tried to make the image a part of the post as well. It wasn't mm-hmm. just this, like, tacked on. You know, I wasn't treating it as a problem. I was treating it as an opportunity. Yeah. Um And... Even when I failed, it was still interesting that I had tried. Um, and I think you know, thinking back on that time, that was also the time of like Perez Hilton was doing that crap of like drawing yeah. on pictures and stuff. There was a, th- there was in the zeitgeist generally. Yeah. I think that that's really fun and it's universal and there's something about it that is like, and this is is something yeah. that I like about comics in general is that it's very universal. Everyone knows what, you know, an image with the speech balloon and, and everyone has had an idea for something like that at some point. And yeah. everyone's had the feeling that they want to put a little speech balloon on a funny photo. And like, that's just, that's so universal.
2: And it's clear that like a person made it. And, and that's something that, yeah. you know, when I was reading back through your work, um, your work ranges from peer articles pure illustrated work and sort of mixed media kind of work. And I was noticing that in in the mixed media work, I mean, it has a real sense of personality. It's almost easy, like, like drawing is an easier way to like say like, hey, I'm a human being than writing. Like, I feel like I sort of knew more about you personally from your drawing than I do from reading, which is like a weird thing to say to someone. But is that a response you get from drawing that people react differently than they do to an article?
3: They do, um, and I and I have always thought that it actually has a lot in common with audio storytelling. Oh, well, um, <laughs> who
2: <where'd> it be?
0: <laughs>
3: um, it's just it's kind of uniquely intimate, and yeah. you can't quite put your finger on why. And it's also in a way it's more intimate than video, even though video has all of those moving parts together. But there's somehow this distance. Like I think art, and it, I think just having just having one of those elements in a way lets you just delve into that one thing and kind of there's, there's a, there's a different form of empathy there.
2: Are you actually thinking about that when you're drawing, like using these sort of emotionally manipulative techniques on on your audience?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think as much as writers also think about those things when they're writing, how do I really evoke what this person was like? Yeah. um, And, and what this place was like, that plays a big, a big role in my work. I am still really a writer. I mm-hmm. think of myself as a writer who also draws. Yeah. I didn't go to art school. I only started drawing with my work after I got laid off from Curbed, um, and I had unemployment and had some time.
2: Did you have a history as in taking art classes, illustrate nothing? Nope. Wow. You're, you're pretty. You're pretty good for for a late starter.
3: It runs in the family. Okay. But I do oh, also. Oh yeah. Right.
2: You ha- okay. For- I forgot that part of it. it yeah. I
3: mean, I do also think like my my early stuff is just god awful embarrassing terrible stuff and i just decided that i was going to keep working through it
2: what is your dad's drawing style like compared to yours
3: super different super different yeah yeah
2: i was looking at my own father's signature and i realized that like somehow like we have basically the same like cursive style but you don't there's no overlap in the in your line
3: i don't think so i mean maybe more commonality in his earlier work Mm -hmm. um but but I don't think anyone would see both of our stuff in a, in a big pile and know like we're, we're related. Okay. You know, when I was younger, he was very supportive of me doing art, and but his way of being supportive was let me give you an art lesson. Like, (laughs) oh, those hands are really rough. Let me show you how to draw hands. Um, Which is not exactly what you want to hear when you're seven and you're just doing this for fun. So it kind of scared me off for a long time. And he's a big shadow.
2: I don't actually know the name of any of these, but does he do like really like classic style editorial cartoons where there's like a caricature of like, uh, Obama and he's kind of yeah, like that's and donkeys he,
3: and elephants. Oh, he's and like, yeah, oh, okay, yeah. yes, thank. you. Yes. That's exactly what I was <laughs> yes. asking.
2: I was gonna say, sort of like the the best reference I have is that like the Onion now has like a fake version yes. of that that is almost indistinguishable from the real version of it. Often, yeah.
3: oh yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. Yes, it's really it's, <laughs> it's really <in>, well done. Yeah. <laughs> it's extremely accurate. Yeah.
2: Okay. I mean, that's interesting because that's like that's what like comics. Journalism was at a specific point of time, and your work is very different than that, and very much, I feel like, of today's internet, which is a very tactile, um, sort of friendly and inviting place. Like, you do a lot, you don't draw a lot of caricatures, you draw a lot of, like, people in a sort of empathetic way. Are those things that even related to each other at all?
3: Yeah, I mean, the reason why I wanted to do this at all was because I, I mean, I was pretty... Strategic about it, I thought there isn't a market for this. Yeah, but I think there will be because editorial cartoonists are losing their jobs at a higher rate than anyone else in journalism. Yeah, they are absolutely a dying breed. It just doesn't really exist as a form anymore. And I just thought there's there's no way that art and news in this in this way has to die something else has to come up and and nothing else was coming up nothing else was bubbling up it was just all dying and everyone was sad and you know i went to a couple of these editorial cartoonist conventions with my dad and talking to other people and seeing that the youngest cartoonist there was older than i was and how um how kind of worried people were about the future of this uh, of this forum, but mostly just worried about their own, uh, their own job security, which is totally understandable. I thought but... I
2: had been to some depressing journalism conferences, but that sounds like the, you don't get the like top-notch resort city for, no. the, for the editorial cartoonist no. 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 Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give you a quick word from one of our oldest... And most esteemed sponsors, Alarm Grid. Alarm Grid is a do-it-yourself security company focused on the experience of you, the consumer. They do their best to take the complexity out of alarm monitoring, meaning you only pay for what you need. So what else is out there when it comes to getting an alarm system? Well, you can go to one of these companies that gives you a super, super expensive system and no contract, but you're kind of stuck because you've bought the expensive system. Or you can go to these companies and say, hey, we'll give you a free system, but that free system comes with a contract that you will never, ever get out of for the rest of your life. How would you like to go with a simpler solution? Alarm Grid has a partnership with a firm that allows you to finance your system. The terms are fair, upfront, and transparent. They have no gimmicks. The price is their price. There's no activation fee. There's no monitoring prices. The service is all over the phone. They've got stuff in YouTube. Great service. And it's all completely free to the customers. You set up the system that you want, and you don't pay anymore. Alarmgrid.com slash longform. You'll get your first month free if you're a listener to this show. Thank you, Alarm Grid. Here I am back with Susie Kegel. So N Plus One published a piece that was sort of a rebuttal to your previous pieces or or to a variety of works um basically stating writers should, should always get paid like writers deserve to get paid and they were kind of like yeah well maybe not like you know not you know it's a little grayer than that and like whatever happened to all of these kind of cushy editorial assistant positions that used to pay for stuff so people could uh, work you know do work for literary journals or or, or what have you and, and what should a small publisher do someone who wants to smart start a small operation online who's literally starting with zero dollars
3: when i was in college i did have a little uh literary magazine that we had no money Uh, we we started it uh ourselves and um figured out a way to uh have parties at bars and um Raise enough money to be able to pay our writers. Yeah. Um. Because it was really important to me, but uh, that is kind of my opinion, and I and I have to say that I wrote that with uh, Manjula Martin, who
2: still, runs Scratch Magazine. Right. Yeah. Yes. Started, are you are you a part of Scratch Magazine?
3: No, but I'm uh, I'm a part of Um Who Pays Writers, which okay. is kind of this project. That's
2: an overlapping project yeah, between the two. Yeah. okay. Yeah. okay, okay. Tell people about Who pay, uh, Who Pays Writers.
3: Um. So Who Pays Writers is a. Uh, Site that uh, modula started in uh, 2012 that yeah. was kind of kind of in response to this larger conversation that was bubbling up about we just don't know how much people are getting paid and yeah. maybe we can just anonymously share information and it was um it was just a blog that people yeah. would send in their own little anonymous reports and so I also have to say that like I've done work for free yeah and I'm not anti doing work for free yes um and that's something that I think uh, does get lost in this yeah um that. It It is it is totally—you should do work for free if you want to do work for free, mm-hmm. um, and that it is not deeply unethical or problematic for an editor to ever ask someone to do work for free. The problem is when you're asking someone to do work for free, and you're getting paid lots of money, and everyone around you is getting paid lots of money, and you're going to put ads on that free thing that are going to earn you lots of money.
2: As someone who's both has a career as a journalist and has a career as sort of an advocate within journalism— do you ever feel like that those are in conflict with each other or you lose opportunities in one because of the other?
3: Yeah, 100%. I'm I'm sure of it. It's complicated. I mean, I also wonder, um, d- just because I I have spent, you know, I have a total of less than 12 months of, of employment um, yeah. in, in my career doesn't mean that I don't ever want to maybe work somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I wonder not just being an advocate for journalists, but also being so outspoken about being an independent contractor and all that that entails, I wonder if that gives people the impression that this is all that I want from work is to be an independent contractor. Um, And I've heard that from people. I've definitely, I've heard that, um, that I just don't really, I couldn't possibly be happy in another situation. It's funny because in in some respects, being outspoken on Twitter is what's gotten me a lot of attention from editors. It's what has ultimately gotten me a lot of work. And so would I have been so successful if I had, um, you know, certainly I, I spent a lot of my time pitching, but, um, I got people's attention and would I, would I have done so well if I had only been pitching quietly and if they had never seen what I said, bubble up in other contexts, I don't know, but, Sometimes I feel like the things that m- have made me more successful as a freelancer have undercut my opportunities or potential opportunities that I would otherwise have.
2: You're sort of advocating for people to be better negotiators while simultaneously trying to become a better negotiator yourself. Like, what are the major, like, um, you know, uh, level ups you've jumped in terms of feeling better about your own ability to sort of control those things in, in your own career? Like how how yeah. does one negotiate?
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, especially for the kind of work that I do, I've gotten a lot better at really describing. Exactly what it is that I do in a way that I think anyone could understand. People either think that I am a witch.
2: That was what I thought going in.
3: I know. I <laughs> it's it's a common misconception that, and then I'm just like cast a spell and this thing magically appears, and that I can't possibly explain it to you or share my knowledge of it with you because you just you 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 are not uh, of my kind, or that it's so intensely, it's so labor intensive that, um, I guess I try to be really cold and calculating in my negotiations. I guess that's how you do it. You try, you just, you try to rid yourself of feelings. Right.
2: (laughs) I know that people never can understand how labor intensive it is to produce finished, inked, illustrated work. How do you sort of internally calculate that? Like, I know that um, journalists will often say, okay, well, this is like a somewhat research intensive pieces. It's like two days of travel and it's 3000 words. Okay. You can kind of like back of the envelope. it. I feel like if you back in the envelope, most illustrations, you're like, oh great. I made 375 an hour on this illustration. <laughs> I've
3: definitely made less than a lot yeah. of illustrations. Yeah.
2: I mean, do you get faster? Like what, what can you yeah. do? Yeah, Yeah. I've
3: gotten a lot faster.
2: What made you go faster?
3: practice and also kind of changing methods. So I started with doing inks and now I, now I decide how I'm going to do the art after I find out how much I'm going to get paid. And
2: so you will do something faster. To match the salary of it. Yeah. Ah, um,
3: so I, I do a lot of d- uh, digital drawings. They're entirely digital because that's a lot faster.
2: Like a Wacom tablet kind yeah. of thing? Yeah.
3: That's usually faster. But then if I do, sometimes I do really complicated textures and colors, then that can end up taking longer than if I just painted the thing. And sometimes I'll just paint the thing if I feel like that's what the story calls for and if there's enough money that I feel like I can spend that much time on it.
2: And do you have like the luxury of revision with that stuff or are you pretty much like as soon as the watercolor hits the paper, that's what it's going to be?
3: So that's why I try to demystify the process yeah. <laughs> because that I definitely in the early kind of early years, I was doing whole like beautiful pieces of art yeah. and then, oh, what if we change this part in that part? <laughs> um, and I hadn't really considered what that would involve. Do
2: editors do that kind of thing? Like, I mean, yeah. I, like I, w- I was, I'm thinking about Generally, if you told an editor that, um, well, we can't edit this part of the story, they would like explode, you know, but in the case of these drawings, you, you can't edit past a certain point, like a drawing.
3: Right. But you can involve, I mean, a big part of this is that I don't, I I very rarely work with art directors. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, especially because I am, I'm the person who's reporting and writing the story too. And the art is part of the story. I'm working with an editor and they may or may not have ever worked with an artist before so I try to hold their hand very tightly through a long series of drafts and I just send too I send too many drafts um and the stories that I send more drafts on are the ones that end up being more successful and the ones that end up having the least amount of changes at the end but I've also learned to like when I do the painting i write all of the text on a separate piece of paper and then Photoshop that in later so that because it's more likely that the editor will want to change text than that they'll want to change art. Interesting. So then that's already readily available to be changed in a different way.
2: Does it make, I mean, do you think it's improved, like your, the quality of your illustrations to work with an editor and art director?
3: It depends. Some Some editors are... I mean, it's just about being a visual thinker. Mm. I don't think that you have to have any sort of skill in art to know, uh, or to, you know, to be able to think that that thing would look better than that other thing. That right. guy should be facing this way and you should <laughs> you should draw a picture of this thing um, or this looks boring. It's been a great help to me. Um, and probably one of the things that's not ideal about being a freelancer is that I would love to have more of that kind of editing. I think that it, it definitely makes my work a lot better.
2: So let's talk about the sort of techniques that you bring to the table as, as a comics journalist. I mean, I'm curious about what kinds of stories are better with pictures? Like, what? How do you sniff out, this is a good thing to draw?
3: Really simple or really complicated. Okay. <laughs> Usually things that fall somewhere in between there yeah. are just messier.
2: Why really complicated?
3: Really complicated in a pr- few particular ways. Um, visual metaphor is super powerful trying to clarify or bring light to some sort of, you know, I did a piece on like municipal debt, how municipal debt works. Art art is really good for numbers. um, And there are ways to, you know, I do a lot of kind of fun illustrated charts that work art in and then don't feel like they're this hard piece of data that you don't want to look at. I think it can be really powerful in in those cases. And then, I mean, just really simple in terms of like character studies and kind of empathizing with a person and getting to know this person just through, uh, you know, drawings of that person, I think is, is really powerful and evocative.
2: Like in, in the sense of empathy, like how do you, how do you draw empathetically?
3: I don't, and I don't want to. I guess just just like I would say that I I don't want to write empathetically mm. necessarily. I want you to draw evocatively and descriptively, and and I want you to really see this person. Um, and I guess to me that is inherently empathetic and i know that i i I disagree with some illustrators on this that feel like it's their job to make you empathize with that person i don't feel like that's my job i hope that you do because i feel like all journalism kind of should do that to some degree but i don't want to do a lot of specific heavy lifting to make you feel like you need to like this lady so i'm gonna give her some more frown lines and make her look extra sad so that you will.
2: So you, you did quite a bit of work from Occupy Oakland. When you saw this is happening, you live kind of in not far away from it. So uh, it was um, something local to cover, but how do you cover something like that as a journalist?
3: It's kind of to your earlier question about at what point do you feel comfortable writing about this place that you are new to? um, That was the first time that I, started writing about Oakland. And I had moved to Oakland later in 2008 from San Francisco. Um, And this was, you know, about three years later. So it was three years during which I saw, it was a really particular time for Oakland. It was um, the Oscar Grant shooting and then the acquittal of um, the police officer who had killed him um, and the riots from both of those incidents. And politically and economically, the foreclosure crisis. I mean, it was, there was a lot of news in Oakland that I was not prepared to cover because I was still figuring out what, what this place was like. I had always uh, wanted to live in Oakland because as a kid I was a big um, fan of the Black Panthers and I uh, had always you know, dreamed of going to UC Berkeley but I didn't get in, so, uh, so I just moved here. And when I saw Occupy spring up, I mean, I went on the first day, it was raining and gross muddy in front of city hall as everyone's setting up their tents and my impression initially which was naive very naive um was well, this will just be this little tent city, and you know, they'll make their demands. But what a great opportunity to do some reporting on Oakland kind of for the first time. And what a visual spectacle what a you know this this makes sense as an illustrated story. That was really my plan, and i and I can't say that I thought super deeply about what was going to happen or where where it was going to go.
2: Yeah. did you have experience before that as sort of a Activist slash journalist, is that how you viewed your role in that situation? I think I assume that because most of what I came across was you getting arrested at right. uh, Occupy, which has sort of an inherent connotation of activism. But yes, just because you got arrested does not mean you were actually there trying to get arrested or that you that was your role there, there at all.
3: Yeah, very much did not want to go to jail that day. Um, <laughs> it, uh, I would say that I have a background as an activist and as a journalist, but uh-huh. not really as an activist journalist. Yeah. A big part of it was I looked at Occupy and said, huh, do I want to set up a tent down here? Is this, is this, you know, the kind of movement that I want to be a part of? And then decided, no, then is this something that I want to cover and decided, yeah. Um, and to a great degree, you know, I, I agreed with a lot of the the politics of it, and I some of my friends were a part of it, um, and that was certainly complicated to a degree. They weren't a part of my stories, um, yeah. but it was weird. Oakland's a small town. I had no notion that I would be treated as kind of an activist journalist um, until I got arrested, which was, you know, three weeks, a little more than three weeks into the whole kind of, Occupy.
2: Do you believe that narrative? You, you were arrested because you were a journalist or you just no. happened to be a journalist and got arrested?
3: I happened to be a journalist in a, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but, you know, I was arrested with more than 100 other people mm. um, who were just kind of surrounded on all sides. I was just I shouldn't have been standing where I was standing.
2: You've done a lot of things in in the decade or so you've been freelance. Like I could have I could have stopped at many places along the way and there was something <laughs> interesting to talk about. But. You know, what, is, what does this feel like in the sum of all of this? You've probably written for 30 different publishers in the last 10 years. You've done illustrated work. You've done reported work. You've done all sorts of different things with your time. Is this something you want to keep doing? I mean, is, can you keep living this way?
3: I don't know. Like I said, you know, I, I check back in every six months and I, and I think about it. What was
2: the last, the last checkup? Uh, how were you feeling at the last checkup?
3: The last checkup was when I wrote that, um, this kind of accounting of this last year of my, of my freelance work, um, which was, um, it was 2015. It wasn't even a whole year because I, uh, I'm as a night fellow at Stanford, I'm not working doing, doing regular client work while I'm
2: there. What is the Night Fellowship I'm, project?
3: I am researching independent labor.
2: Hey, yeah there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and that's, a, that's like a six-month deal, or how, how long is the night Fellowship? It's the
3: academic year, academic so year. Okay, it's yeah. over in June. You know, I presume that I will return to, to this stuff that I've been doing, but yeah. it has been kind of a trip because when you are doing this stuff, even I mean, especially when it's going well, you don't have time to really to lift your head up and look around and think, you know, what the hell is going on? Um, things are just moving so quickly. I did that accounting kind of personally, emotionally and financially um, and I don't know. in a way I feel like now would be the right time for me to to go inside somewhere um, and 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 try something else. but I do wonder if, if i have um effectively closed all of those doors for myself um which which is what it is i'm still having having fun i i still i still really enjoy this there's a there's a lot more opportunity just for this the kind of work that i do and not just for me just in general i feel like Editors are more excited about it. It's a different attitude toward it um, than when I was first starting, and I would love to see more young people coming up and being excited about doing it. I wish that those kids who had asked me at those conventions in 2010 (laughs) would come back. And now I would say, yeah, now now is great. Do it now.
2: I mean, do you still get those emails? I mean, do the emails keep coming or did they sort of dry out?
3: They they keep coming. Okay, there's always Um, there's always
2: new kids to give false ideals.
3: <laughs> but usually the question is like, how do I break in? And they are not inspired by, but I think it's inspiring that you don't break in. Like you, there's no, there's no door. You don't, it's not going to work that way. Um, if you really want it, you know, you chase it and maybe you'll catch it. Maybe you won't. It'll be fun. Uh, you'll be really tired, but I would love to see more, more young people excited about it, because I think that's also the only way that it sustains. I mean, it's kind of nice for me that I, that there's this market now, and I've got it kind of cornered. But um, there are a half dozen other people who do roughly what I do, and they're all great. And when I talk to them, we're all getting lots of work. It's great times for everybody. But there's only like half a dozen of us and maybe a few more coming up. But I feel like if it if it is just seen as like this kind of gimmick that this relatively small group of people are the only ones who know how to do it, it'll it won't be seen as a real market or a real thing. And I and I would like to see it. I would like to see it continue.
2: Thank you very much, Susie Cagle. Where can where can people find your work if they're looking?
3: Susie underscore C on Twitter, and that's, yeah, that's a good okay. portal to, and there's uh... And
2: your Tumblr seems like it has, like, a pretty good reverse chronological. Yeah. Susie dash c, c. at tum, dot .tumblr.com. Thanks so much. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Susie Kegel for letting me tape in her lovely Oakland studio. Also... I need to apologize to her. When I was leaving, I stole her power cord. And then I did not realize it, and she told me, and uh, I had to put her through the hassle of returning that power cord. But the story doesn't end there. I intended to give her back her power cord, but I had, now I had two power cords. I didn't know which one was which, so I thought, oh, I'll give her the nicer, newer one. I put them both in my car, and then I walked up to her door, and I think I gave her the older one, which is may have been a, a dirty filthy Aaron Lamber power cord. So, if you're still listening, Susie, I think I may have pulled a switcheroo on the power cord. I would like to return to you the proper power cord. Uh, I will email about that. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, this show is edited by Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern is Courtney Harrell. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fresh FreshBooks, uh, Alarm Grid, Mailchimp. You're all great. We'll be back next week.